online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Hello and welcome to the program on this Tuesday afternoon in Dairy. Milk production is down. We look at what that's doing to the processing industry and some of our favourite products. We don't produce enough butter for our own market nationally anymore. Because the milk is declining, we've seen a change in the way that one of the major retailers is sourcing product rather than buying product, it's buying milk and processing that. And encouraging more teenagers to think about an agricultural science degree. There's so many disciplines within agricultural science as a whole and whether that's looking into, say, entomology, which is the study of insects and how that's important for food production, or uh, viticulture, which is where I mostly work in, which is grape growing, wine making. So much more on the program today. If you'd like to join the conversation, send us a text on 0438 922 Perhaps you'd like to talk about cherries and that's where we're going to go to at the start of our program and joining me on the line is one of Tasmania's biggest cherry growers Howard Hansen welcome to the country hour good afternoon Fiona thanks for joining us now the weather in Tasmania over sort of November December was a bit cold and overcast what did that do to your cherry season and where you're at at the moment Oh, look, it's probably delayed it slightly, but um, but we were already expecting... Chinese New Year is the main occasion of gift-giving in Asia, and it's a very big part of our marketing plan. It's lunar, so it moves with the moon cycle a bit like Easter, and it's a very, very early Chinese New Year this year. So um, we've done a lot of things to try and encourage the the trees to crop a bit earlier to line up with the market um, and those have worked really well. It's probably bought our our maturity forward by six or seven days. What sort of but things cool, do you mean? Uh, we break dormancy of the trees a little bit earlier so we get them flowering earlier and so get them out of the starting blocks a little bit earlier in the spring and that will allow them to uh, to um, get their growing degree days and be harvested earlier. Uh, but then the cool weather probably meant a reduction in the growing degree days. So the end result is that our own harvest is in a, within about a day or two of normal. So we would have liked to have probably dragged them forward a little bit. But um, but anyway, at least our, um, we've had a busy couple of weeks in the lead up to Chinese New Year, which is this Sunday. So we've only got a couple of days left of, of shipping to have stuff uh, arrive in Asia ahead of the celebration. Yeah, so this Sunday, uh, what sort of cherries, what are the ultimate for uh, Chinese people during Chinese New Year? And it's not just in China, is it? No, no, it's uh, you know, the Lunar New Year is celebrated through most of the Asian countries and it's the biggest gift-giving occasion in their calendar. Uh, yes, Tasmanian cherries are certainly considered a luxury item and a, a prestigious gift to give. Um, and really they're looking for you know, big fruit, sweet fruit, firm fruit and dark in colour. Okay, and you've sent, how have you sent those? Have you exported them to Hong Kong or straight into China? Uh, well, yeah, no, not not just China. So, uh, you know, we're going to about a dozen different markets through Asia. Um, uh, China is, uh, you know, it'll be in the top uh, four or five markets, but um, but 
you know, there are other markets that are just as significant, if not more significant. What sort of other countries? Uh, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. What sort of cherries are we talking about at the moment that you're picking? Uh, so in the Dermot Valley today, we're picking the variety Regina, and we've just actually started on that this morning in the Huon as well. And and so that's sort of uh, um, one of the, the mid-season varieties, and uh, we're about to start on staccato in the Dermot Valley probably late today or tomorrow, which is the most significant volume variety that we grow up there. And how are you going with workers? You've got a bit of a mix? Uh, yep, yep. No, plenty of them around. So uh, yes, we've you know we've got a bit of a mix of uh, our traditional labour sources. So um, uh, so in the Derwent Valley, we've for a very long time we've had a lot of uh, Bhutanese people and some um, uh, some backpackers as well, supplementing the crew up there. In the Huon, we've got uh, thirty Samoans here that are here under the seasonal worker program and with us for six to nine months. Uh, that's been supplemented with some other nationalities under the seasonal worker program. And in the packing facility, uh, we've got a, a, a lot of local kids that are used um, for a lot of the carton erection and box making duties. And we've also got in the packing facility a lot of uh, students that are studying at UTAS and uh, their, their holiday period coincides with the period that we have a lot of work available. Fantastic. They can earn some money, some good money. Um, now, I saw some vision of the packing, well, the new packing shed down at the Hewen that you have with a lot of sort of uh, equipment and uh, machinery that, that works by itself. Tell me about some of that fantastic looking machinery you've got in there. Uh, so, yeah, this is the second year in the new facility. So uh, we've worked with the uh, a Spanish company, Elifab, and a Dutch company, Ellipse, to, who provide the cameras and the sorting technology. A German company, uh, Palm, that have supplied the bin tipping technology. And, uh, yeah, so second year of operating in that facility. And, um, yeah, it's all going very smoothly. How many tonnes would you get through that facility each season? Uh, we'll do about 2,500. And that's working incredibly well. You have less labour needs because of that, or um, we, we don't have less people in the place, but we um, we it's lifted our production per hour. So um, so we've still got you know 130 to 140 people in the facility, uh, but we can do a few more tons per hour in the new facility than we could in the old, and and it's yeah it's a lot more energy efficient so um, we're using a lot more gravity for moving water around so um, and it's and it's the building's a lot better insulated so there's a lot less power got to go in the door to keep all the water cold. Now you've got uh, obviously you've got orchards in the in the Derwent Valley you're also involved in some operations interstate is that cherries as well? Uh, yes, we, we don't have any production facilities in the state, but we um, uh, we market uh, a, f a reasonable volume of fruit from mainland Australian cherry and citrus growers, but um, most of our mainland guys have had a you know, pretty climatically challenged year, and it was pretty difficult for us to compete internationally prior to Christmas, when you know so much of the the limited production that was available in Australia was 
was in pretty high demand domestically in Australia. So, um, so yes, our our mainland export program definitely was a fair bit less than the previous years. Did that uh, affect Tassie at all? Did it put Tassie in a good spot just because of that misfortune of flooding, etc., interstate? Oh, not really, because it's a different time of the year. So, um, so pretty much there was, you know, there was a. Uh, you know, fairly limited volume available up until Christmas, but um, but uh, post Christmas when Tasmania started, uh, there's you know, been more significant volume available and more available to export. Okay, Howard Hanson, uh, cherry grower down in the Duant Valley. Uh, what can if someone's going out to buy some cherries, what what will they be able to get out on the shelves around Tassie at the moment? Um, they should be able to get a full range of products. So if, uh, with the supermarkets, there'll be 600-gram catchweight bags, there'll be three and 500-gram punnets available, and then some of the smaller independent retailers often tend to have uh, uh, loose fruit available um, for sale. So all of that should be on the shelves at the moment. And what do you think about quality this this season? Uh, yeah, look, our packouts have probably looked like averaging higher than they've been in recent years. The, um, although the, the, the season was a bit climatically challenged early with a very challenging spring conditions and very wet through October, November and the first part of December, uh, once we've got to Christmas, we've moved into a lot more stable weather pattern. We're getting some nice warm days. So packouts are high, firmness is good. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're very happy quality-wise. Howard Hanson from Hanson Orchards, thanks so much for joining the Country Hour. A pleasure, Fiona. Thank you. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency broadcaster. Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, how do you feel about butter? Oh, love it on a bit of toast or on a scone and cheese. Love that too. Favourites of mine. Well, Australia's dairy production is falling to the point where milk companies don't actually make enough butter or cheese to supply the local market. Meg Powell spoke to analyst Steve Spencer to find out why. So um, milk prices were set um, last June. Um, they set annually. So when around that time we had a, a really strong uplift in uh, dairy product prices, commodity prices on the global market, which flowed into this into this country because we are we are quite exposed to the world market. Um, so that situation was caused by really an acute shortage of milk globally uh, with every major production region declining uh, we had still pretty good demand so that created a big squeeze and as a result you know prices lifted so that flowed into the prices that were set at the start of the season so what's what's happened since that time while farm gate prices are very strong and they've you know been set at record levels across Australian regions 
and pretty much, I guess, the average in the manufacturing regions, we're up nearly $10 a kilo milk solids as an annual you know, estimate of milk prices paid at Farmgate. In the meantime, however, the, uh, the world market has softened. Naturally, high prices, eventually you see some impact. Either you get more milk being produced in response to that or you see some pushback on demand at high prices. Both those things have occurred. And so the world market prices have fallen. However, in the Australian market, we haven't seen such a big direct impact of that effect because we've, we've become a bit disconnected from some of the major price movements globally because of our domestic milk shortage. And this is where I um, ask you to get out your crystal ball and, and say, what are you expecting is going to happen at the end of this season when we come to setting the prices for next season? Okay. So we've seen milk production in Australia down... You know, we've seen some fairly large declines across the southern regions and that is it's creating or making a product shortage much worse in terms of butter fat. So we, we don't produce enough butter for our own market nationally anymore. We've seen a change in the way, because the milk is declining, we've seen a change in the way that one of the major retailers is sourcing product rather than buying product it's buying milk and processing that. So that's caused you know, prices for cheese and butter to stay relatively stable and not follow the world market down. So we don't believe there's going to be a very large decline in farm gate prices next season. We don't think they'll, they'll alter significantly from what we're seeing at the moment based on current indications. Because of that, if you like, immunity, we've got an immunity card uh, from what's going on globally with cheese and butter, and that's, that's going to keep the market reasonably stable at farm gate. Which is uh, good news for farmers, those good prices. But in the meantime, production is down, as you said, and we know that uh, there are less producers, out, less farmers out there than there were. What's going on there? So, look, this is, this is causing a lot of people to scratch their heads, uh, you know, nationally. Um, uh, I guess the, you could put it down to there's a whole lot of factors going on that are causing that, um, that change uh, or that, that decline in output, but Pretty much, um, if I'd said the major reason is that the, the exits or the attraction of capital values for farms and um, cattle, etc., have also been very high, so that's made it quite attractive to look at exiting the industry. Um, <clears throat> but in, in many cases, producers are facing labour shortages, they're facing rising input costs. It's getting a lot harder to produce milk with the current resources. So a combination of, you know, extractive exits and more difficulties in resourcing the farms is, is combining. And they're probably the major reasons why we're seeing an exodus occur. And is public demand for dairy products still high? And how does that compare to the supply? So within Australia, demand is still quite good. We've seen it come off a bit at higher prices and the consumers are doing it a bit tougher with the, you know, the way the economy is going and households facing higher inflation uh, and cost of finance. So that is starting to take a toll and we are seeing a a small decline in demand, but it's nothing like the extent of reduction in our domestic milk supply. I mean, we we, we rely on imports for about a third of our cheese market, um, more than half of our butter market. So we are um, not having a shortage of product as such, but simply the pressure on prices is is not so strong because of that softening in demand. So Globally, demand is weaker. Um, the, the big global effect at the moment 
which has caused the market to soften is the fact that China is um, just coming out of some fairly strict COVID restrictions, which has reduced their import demand very significantly. So that's that's caused a, uh, a reduction in milk powder prices and the prices of butterfat, um, especially in New Zealand. There's a national dairy conference on next month down in Hobart. What's some of the hot topics that are going to be talked about? One of the topics going to be addressed in that is, so with this, um, with this decline in milk production, can it be stopped? I mean, will it, you know, is, is it capable of being turned around? Um, and one of the topics that my co-director Joe Bills and I will be talking about is what does it look like if we go forward to the end of the decade? Um, what's the industry look like when we've, you know, had a big decline in milk? Uh, and what is that? What is that likely to do to the way in which this industry operates? Um, how milk's going to be valued? Will the world market matters as much anymore? So a lot of very big questions around the industry as we look look out into that future. So that's that's one of the subjects in discussion and, and look, it's hopefully very interesting to farmers to you know, get a perspective on what it means for their future. And that was dairy analyst Steve Spencer talking about some of the latest trends in national dairy markets. Now, the Federal Agriculture Minister is travelling to Berlin this week promoting Australian produce. Murray Watts says he'll be pushing the green credentials of Australian farming as the government seeks to secure a free trade deal with the European Union. Uh, when it comes to the trade agreement, we're obviously pushing for the best possible market access for Australian producers. And we've made very clear to the EU that we're not going to settle for any deal. There has to be meaningful gains to Australian producers in terms of the quotas and the quantity that we can export. Uh, but we'll also be pushing back on the geographical indicators point that's been raised by the EU. Our position is that when we're talking about Prosecco or some of the other products that this is under discussion, um, these are not um, geographic issues. These are uh, issues of the types of grapes or the types of cheese and those sorts of things. And we don't think that Australian producers should be restricted in their use of that. So from your perspective, what is up for negotiation? What names might be tradable? Um, well, our position at the moment is that there, 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 sh- there is no uh, need for Australia to be dropping those names. Um, they are Which things names? like Prosecco, yep. uh, things like Prosecco, Parmesan, feta cheese. These are well-established names of products right across the ra- world. And just as other countries can continue to use those names, we think that Australian producers should be able to as well. Um, we're obviously prepared to give ground on a range of things for the EU. It's a two, it's a two-way street, and there are products that they're keen to get into Australia that. Um, uh, there are so certain barriers for at the moment, um, but we have a strong position when it comes to geographic indicators and, and we want to get behind Australian producers to preserve our position. Are you prepared to negotiate on animal welfare or chemical use when it comes to negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU? One of the things that we know the EU are keen to do is to ensure that there are some strong environmental uh, and sustainability measures as part of the agreement. And uh, depending on the specifics of those, we're up for that conversation. As I say, the other purpose of this visit to Berlin is to demonstrate to the world that Australian agricultural producers are far more sustainable than what is often recognised. I think, unfortunately, particularly because of the former Australian government's position on climate and sustainability issues, our producers sometimes attracted a reputation that wasn't deserved. The, certainly the Australian producers that I meet with and, and visit farms of are fully committed to sustainability and, and I'm confident that we can meet uh, what the EU is looking for. 
Um, I mean, I think what's important as well is for the EU to understand that there's no one-size-fits-all approach that works when it comes to sustainability. The EU are taking a certain approach, uh, very heavy on regulation and uh, herd reduction and things like that. We don't think those sort of measures are necessary in Australia or many other countries uh, to achieve sustainability, and we're keen to make sure that the world understands where we're coming from on these issues. And that was Australia's Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watts, speaking speaking with Kath Sullivan. The Minister is also travelling to London this week. He's calling on his British counterparts to ratify the UK-Australia free trade deal early this year after Australia ratified its part of the agreement in late 2022. Now, the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture is ramping up its efforts to attract more students into the Ag Science Department at the University of Tasmania. The latest research shows that there are six jobs to every agricultural science graduate in Australia, and many of the graduates are spoilt for choice. Here's agricultural scientist Dr Harriet Walker. Usually we find that students are really surprised about what agricultural science actually involves. They're kind of thinking that it's more about farming and that you do agricultural science to become a farmer. And we're trying to introduce them to the fact that there's so many disciplines within agricultural science as a whole and there's so many different science opportunities, whether that's looking into, say, entomology, which is the study of insects and how that's important for food production, or uh, viticulture, which is where I mostly work in, which is grape growing, wine making, could be a plant breeder, a plant geneticist. It's just there's a lot of different career pathways and students don't really know about them. And there's a lot of practical um, aspects to uh, ag science as well. Yes, exactly. And I think that's kind of what I find anyway really intriguing about ag science is that you know, every day can look quite different. Obviously, it depends what career pathway you go down to. But for me, for instance, some days I'm doing data in front of the computer, I'm working on a paper, some days I'm in the lab. The other day I was in the vineyard collecting soil samples. There's a lot of that practical aspect. And for that um, reason, our degree, I guess, is really face-to-face, which I think students have really missed over the last few years. By that, you mean that students actually need to come into the university to do a good portion of their study? Yes, yeah, exactly. So practicals, labs, field trips are really important for the degree. We're trying to make sure that students come out of their degree kind of job ready and that practical application is a huge part of career pathways coming out of agricultural science. You've been going into schools grade 11 and 12 or...? Mostly grade 11 and 12. Definitely in the second half of the year, uh, there were more schools doing careers fairs and I went in and gave a few presentations. That was really valuable. We also held the Feed Your Mind, Feed the World camp at the start of December and that's offered for year 11 and 12 students that are interested in agricultural science or just even science in general and want to know more about what agricultural science entails. And that was really successful this year. We had quite a lot of applications, but we choose a small cohort uh, to come along on the trip just to make it a little bit more personal, I guess, if you like. So um, this year we had 10 students from mainland Australia and I think there was 13 or 14 students from Tasmania and fairly evenly spread from across the state. So we had students in the south, in the north, northwest. Have you found that reaching out to grade 11 and 12 students is early enough? 
Sometimes it is. <laughs> there are students that still don't know what they want to do in year 11, 12. I was one of those students kind of doing subjects that were very fundamental, like English and maths and science. Um, but I do think this year we're trying to concentrate our efforts a little bit more in high school, for instance, in grade nine and grade 10. Again, I think it's, you know, a lot to take in in year 11 and 12 when you're already, students are already stressed about their options and what they want to do. Adding in a whole new thing that they might have never have thought about before um, can be a little bit overwhelming and a little bit um, out of the comfort zone. So I think by introducing these aspects earlier within schools, whether that's through doing presentations, working with teachers, um, working with careers advisors, uh, that's what we're really striving for. The main thing as well that we're trying to target is kids from a regional background are already quite familiar with agricultural science. What we're missing is those kids more from a city background that um, have never considered it before and they're looking into areas that they want to improve, for instance, sustainability, thinking about climate change, thinking about their environment. And they're all coming from that basis, but they've never considered agricultural science. And that's a huge part of what you can do within agricultural science. So it's trying to reach those students as well. And just finally, what about job success at the end of uh, doing an ag science degree? Yeah. So the latest data that's come out, um, Professor Jim Prattley has released a report that says that for every agricultural science graduate um, that graduates, there is six jobs available. So that's looking at annual data that comes out um, assessing, you know, how many ag science graduates there are and how many jobs that are at that high level that are sought after for. So we've really reached this point where, you know, industry really needs people that are skilled in these areas to help keep the industry going. There's a lot of things that we have to try and solve in terms of climate change, in terms of um, world hunger, in terms of growing population, in terms of all these floods and fires. There's so many issues that we need and we just don't have those people capable at the moment. So, you know, job prospects are also really looking really good. At UTAS, we also have a lot of industry support, which means we do have a lot of scholarships available. So over $250,000 of scholarships available annually. We're really hearing from industry that they want graduates, that we need people that are skilled in these areas. So um, if anyone's interested in agricultural science, I guess it's a really good time to get to know what it's all about and try it out. Now's the time. Think about agricultural science. If you like the sciences at UTAS, and that was agricultural scientist Dr. Harriet Walker. Time now for the news headlines and Will Murray. Good afternoon, Fiona. A coroner has made a number of safety recommendations for free divers following the drowning of a Chinese exchange student at Bruny Island in 2021. In November that year, UR travelled with two others to Lighthouse Bay on Bruny to dive for lobster. Coroner Robert Webster found he drowned when his foot became entangled in a spearfishing line. He recommended never free diving alone and, if going out with a partner, not diving at the same time. Tasmania police say most drivers were patient and understanding during yesterday's traffic problems. The Tasman Bridge was closed for over four hours after a truck rolled while entering from the Domain Highway, causing gridlock throughout Hobart's suburbs. A police spokesperson said they were limited in how they were able to divert traffic. 
And British TV presenter Jeremy Clarkson says he's reached out to Prince Harry and his wife Meghan to apologise over a column he wrote last year. In the article published in the Sun newspaper, the former Top Gear host said he hated Meghan and wanted to see her paraded through the street naked. A spokesperson for Prince Harry and Meghan says Clarkson has a history of spreading hate and misogyny. I'll have more news at one. Coming up, a hive of activity for beekeepers involved in pollinating food crops around the state. On the crop point of view, you walk through the crop and uh, just count the bees on every row. So every all the bees that are visiting the male lines and the female lines and walk 10 or 20 metres and count bees. And we try and work on a minimum amount of one bee per uh, square metre. More on that and how those honeybees are travelling this summer after the weather. Let's check in with the Bureau and Brooke Oakley. Hi, Brooke. Good afternoon. Has there been much rainfall about? There has been a little bit this morning, particularly about the northwest and the northeast of the state. So in the 24 hours to 9am, the highest totals were 4mm at St Helens, followed by 3mm at St Patrick's Head. Since 9am this morning, those same two sites have seen the highest rainfall with 4mm at St Patrick's Head and 2mm at St Helens and also grey and friendly beaches. It's also been a lot cloudier in the north and the east than the southwest of the state, although we have started to see the cloud clear about the south in the last couple of hours, and temperatures are on their way up. Strawn has already reached 30 degrees, and Hobart is currently sitting on 26 degrees. Cooler in the north because of all the cloud around, with Launceston on 24 and Devonport and Wynyard both 21. We are expecting it to be a hot day today, with those maximum temperatures getting into the low to mid-30s for the south and the west of the state, and it will be milder in the north due to the cloudy conditions. This is just going to be a one-off hot day, though, as we do have a cold front to cross the state early tomorrow morning. So for the weather for today, there will still be some showers about the north, mostly about higher ground, but fine otherwise until showers develop about the west in the evening. And there's some possible thunderstorms about the northwest this evening and then travelling through Bass Strait in the overnight period. The showers are also going to extend statewide early tomorrow morning before contracting to the west, south and northeast later in the morning. And then there is possible thunderstorms about the northeast during the afternoon and evening. It will also be windier tomorrow with northwesterly winds shifting fresh west to southwesterly during the morning and then tending south to southwesterly in the evening. The cooler conditions are going to continue for a number of days and that will mean lower fire dangers than what we've seen over the last couple of days. And we do have high fire dangers for parts of the state both today and tomorrow. And then generally settled weather returns for the end of the week as conditions become more ridge dominated. Any warnings? For today, there is a strong wind warning current for southeastern coastal waters from Wineglass Bay to southeast Cape and also for the far northwest coast. And for tomorrow, a strong wind warning is current for all Tasmanian coastal waters, including Storm Bay and Frederick Henry and Norfolk Bays. And coastal waters and swell. For today, we've got east to northeasterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots about the northwest and southeast. The winds are decreasing to 10 to 20 knots about the north this evening. 
the swells in the west and south are west to southwesterly of one and a half to two metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.7 metres. In the north, a westerly below one metre, and in the east, a northeasterly around one metre. And the wave rider buoy at Marar Island is currently reading 1.2 metres. For tomorrow, we'll see northerly winds of 15 to 20 knots about the east at first, and then west to southwesterly winds of 15 to 25 knots will extend throughout during the morning, and then increase to 20 to 30 knots in the middle of the day. The swells in the west and south will start out west to southwesterly, one and a half to two and a half metres, then build to three and a half to four and a half metres during the day. In the north, confused below one metre, and in the east, northeasterly one to two metres, and also a southerly of up to 1.5 metres, tending southwesterly 1.5 to 3 metres offshore in the south. Brooke Oakley, thanks very much. Thank you. I stand with the people. People others first. Who care for the young. And the aged. Give of themselves. For the benefit of all. Make a difference. In small ways. And bring big changes. I'm in good company. I'm in good company. Who will be Australian of the Year? Join Susie Youssef and meet Hamish McDonald to find out who will be Australian of the Year. Wednesday night, January 25th on ABC Radio, ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. There are a lot of people loving this warm, sunny weather these past few weeks and honeybees are a big fan too. A quarter of the state's commercial beehives are needed to pollinate vegetable and seed crops. Mick Palmer from Tasmanian Pollination Services says they've added an extra 2,000 hives to their operation to cover expanding production. Well, our season starts with the cherries in September, but it has been a a challenging season with the with the weather and the bees have sort of struggled they've taken three steps forward and two steps back but we've moved forward along the way yeah just before Christmas the rain stopped and just in time for our biggest pollination which is carrots and canola so and so when did those hives head out they started heading out uh, the middle of December and then through between Christmas and New Year and then just after New Year. So at the moment we've got about 5,500 hives out on carrots and canola and clover, chicory and fennel. And you must be wrapped that we haven't had any rain for a week or two. Yeah, so we're starting to bring in some good um, honey to harvest and uh, lots of pollen and the bees are doing really well. So yeah. How do you go into a crop and determine if the bees are pollinating as effectively as they should be? Yeah, so from a beekeeper's point of view, we start at the hive and make sure that there's enough brood, uh, enough frames of of bees, and that uh, before we even go into the hive, I guess we look at the bees coming in and out. And then uh, on the crop point of view, you walk through the crop and uh, just count the bees on every row, so every all the bees that are visiting the male lines and the female lines, and walk 10 or 20 metres and count them at bees, and we try and work on a minimum amount of one bee per uh, square metre. And that gives you a, a true indication of how hard they're working? That's, that's correct. So the higher the number, the better. 
Do they prefer one crop over the other, prefer carrots over canola? Can you tell? Yeah, you certainly can tell. And there's also different varieties of both canola and carrots and uh, some of the crosses. So when we're talking seed production, they're crossing different varieties and that's where the bees come in with the pollination and some of the varieties have odd-shaped flowers or different colours. They obviously, they like the, the brighter flowers and if the flower is a bit greener then um, it's certainly challenging for us as pollinators and some flowers are challenging in the way that they're that they're built for the the bee or the fly to get what they want to get out of it and generally uh, if even though it may be the weather it's the pollinator that normally gets the first blame uh, the brassicas um, leading up to Christmas um, I think it was a challenging year for pollination but um but we still got through it. So. This is canola. Yeah, so canola and brassicas. All well, brassicas is canola, but also the cabbages and cauliflowers. Broccoli. Yeah. What does the honey taste like from vegetable seed crops? Yeah, it's actually pretty good. Most of the honey is, has got a sweet taste, and then it's the aftertaste mainly, I think, that, um, that the individual taste comes through. And um, the majority of our honey comes off the carrots. At, the, at this time of year in the clover. So um, carrots are probably our biggest producer of honey. Does it have a distinct flavour? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it's actually sold through retail around Tasmania a fair bit and they, they don't call it carrot because that's not appealing. So we normally call it summer bloom. It's, it's a really nice taste and, and it's probably something that people in Tasmania go for over other varieties. But Um, comes from the carrot. When do the bees pack up and have a rest? Yeah so again that's up to mother nature but it's generally uh, around March. Uh, Last year we got a a bit late into March April but generally around March we start to go around the bees and they've um, finished bringing in honey and we start to pack them down so make sure that they're nice and compact for winter and have the stores that they need and it's about March I think. Has the number of hives that you manage changed this season? Yeah, so at the start of the season we had four and a half and now we've expanded to 6,000 hives and that's told to cover the external pollination as well as the internal pollination. So we're a daughter company of, of Bejo Seeds and, and uh, yeah, across the other varieties and seed companies as well. So Enough? Needed more? Look, there would be, from my point of view, I think that there's enough room for tens of thousands of beehives in Tasmania to cover the, the present and future pollination requirements within Tasmania. What's not for us to do, but um, some, someone needs to do it. Again, with the varroa mite on the, on the mainland, Tasmania is looking appealing for these crops, you know, and the reliability of pollinators, which Tasmania has at the moment, so... And that was Mick Palmer from the Tasmanian Pollination Services talking about honeybees working in carrot seed crops. And we've got another honey story coming up. But first, we've got a call in from Julie Devlin, who's the secretary of the Southern Tasmanian Poultry Club. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? Very good. Thanks for joining the Country Hour. And you've got a bit of activity coming up this week. We have. We're um, in collaboration with the Sorrell Council this weekend on the 21st, the Saturday. From 10 to 12, we're holding another poultry amnesty. Ah, so, so what does that mean? 
So, I mean, people that have got either an excess of poultry, um, could be roosters in a suburban environment, or they need to surrender um, excess poultry for a variety of reasons. Um, they can come along and surrender their birds between 10 and 12 behind the Sorrell Memorial Hall in the back car park. Okay, so if anyone's got those roosters, I can, can hear them in the back background <laughs> there with you. You've probably got a few yourself. But, I um, have a few, yes. What happens, dare I ask, what happens to them? Okay, majority of the time, we've actually got a, oh, for the last four weeks while we've been planning this amnesty, we've been fielding a lot of inquiries from people looking to actually um, provide new homes for birds that are surrendered. Um, not a lot of the birds, uh, most people think they're all going to be roosters, but we've seen also a lot of um, females, whether they've been pullets or hens, surrendered as well. Okay, so, so all then, sorts. People, yeah, so people actually come down deliberately to the amnesties to see what birds they can rehome on the day. And um, we, all the, the club members do a health check on the birds when they're surrendered. Um, and all the birds that um, are apparently fit and healthy and disease-free are all offered up um, for rehoming on the day. And so far, for the last three amnesties that we've run, we've had no birds left over. Oh, that that's fantastic. Okay, Julie Devlin, so just once more, whereabouts are you doing that? This is at the Sorrell Memorial Hall in the back car park this Saturday, the 21st, from 10am to 12 noon. Thanks so much, Julie. Hope it goes Thank well. You. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now back to bees and Victorian beekeepers are continuing the fight to bring their hives back from New South Wales. It's been more than six months since varroa mite was first detected in New South Wales, but the vast majority of the state is now in a blue general biosecurity zone. It's making beekeeping untenable for people like Malden's Lindsay Calloway, who has more than 3,000 hives and employs 12 people. With had to step away from uh, most of our canola seed contracts and we couldn't get bees from New South Wales to to our almond contracts. So it's cost us directly uh, about a quarter of a million dollars in contracts. In the last few weeks, we've spoken to another central Victorian beekeeper who says the floral resources in New South Wales are starting to peter out a bit and many beekeepers want to bring hives back into Victoria so they can be healthy heading into pollination. Is that something that you're wanting to do as well? Absolutely. Beekeeping is a 12-month-a-year thing. You can't just click your fingers and produce hives good enough for almonds in June. You've got to do it um, throughout the whole year. It's all about momentum and pollen source and nectar source. So it's all about keeping the bees up and healthy. So we need we need to be able to keep the bees on honey flows and pollen flows. And in an ideal world, if uh, there weren't restrictions on borders, where would you have your hives at the moment or be looking to move them to in the near future? Ideally, I'd be bringing hives back into this month from New South Wales and I probably would have taken more bees to New South Wales for red gum. Options are king in beekeeping, so to have the border closure, it sort of uh, puts a wedge right through all your options and makes beekeeping quite untenable. What sort of lobbying have you been doing to try and get the Victorian border opened? I've written to the Agriculture Minister. I've, I've put in an application with the biosecurity team at Agriculture Victoria in December to move hives back. So um, while Malden operate under a world-class standard of compliance where we'd be our CGS and currently have a double A-plus rating. So we're certainly putting our case forward that we'd like to work with 
agricultural Victoria to move, move our hives home. What kind of feedback have you had from the Victorian government to these requests so far? Mostly that they're working on it and that they're looking for the New South Wales Blue Zone, which is the area outside of the infected premises of New South Wales. Um, they're looking for that uh, proof of freedom certificate. So my understanding is that once they're happy with that and that's ticked off, that they will allow us to start to cross the border. Let's hope that happens soon. And that was Malden beekeeper Lindsay Calloway. And we've had a text in following one of our earlier stories about the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture reaching out to kids and teenagers around the place, encouraging them to think about ag science or agricultural science as a degree at the University of Tasmania. We've had a text from Will who says agricultural science is our future. Let's grow a more sustainable world. World. And if you'd like to add any more to the text and talk about that, 0438 922 936. Now, a literal rat race is on in North Queensland as farmers scramble to save sugarcane fields from a rat plague. Lucy Cooper reports. Native rat populations are booming in North Queensland. Just over an hour north of Townsville lies Ingham, the heart of the sugarcane industry. Local cane farmer Greg O'Keller feels hopeless as the rat populations, now in its millions, decimate paddock after paddock. You know, the, the rat damage is evident when you look through the crop you can see through the way the crop, see what the rat damage has done there. Um, the crop should look like that, but sadly it's all on the ground and it's been rat chewed. They'll chew the crop, uh, you know, 18 inches off the ground like so, and then the crop falls over and they may nibble another bit, but sometimes then they'll go and find a new host and they'll, they'll climb that stick and start to eat that stick as well. So they'll decimate a crop very, very quickly. It's not just the presence of the rats that is terrifying, but what they do to the sugar quality. So that's the evidence of the rat damage inside here. So you can see where they've climbed the stalks and had a, had a chew there. And um, sadly, this particular piece of cane's finished. It's, uh, it's starting to rot from the inside there. So that'll, that'll, go, um, that'll have a funny smell. It'll go to look sour and the sugar content of that cane's basically done. It's finished. Farmers have never seen rat populations so high. Lawrence DeBella, the manager at Herbert Kane Productivity Services, says it's all thanks to ideal conditions over the last two years. That crop's uh, flat on the ground, so a lot of those ground rats and climbing rats are actually in the crop right now. We've had an ideal season probably the last two years. We haven't had a wet season, so they haven't drowned in their burrows and haven't frozen out in the, in the cold rains. So we've had the ideal uh, wet seasons for the last two years to see rat numbers start to increase. With the lodge crop, we've got a heap of weeds now starting to merge through the, the canopy, and so rats need protein to actually start to have their young and come in a season. With millions of rats in the fields, Lawrence DeBella says it's hard to keep up with their breeding cycles. Breeding pair in 12 months can have 460 offspring roughly, so those numbers can increase very rapidly, and every couple of weeks they're having a new litter of, of, of mice, so that's the issue we're trying to deal with now, is that recurrence of more and more and more. It's an issue across the region which had devastating repercussions on what was already a very tough season. Chris Bosworth, chairman of Cane Growers Herbert River, says entire crops have been wiped out. Rat plague is like, again, I've never seen it so bad. It's uh, district-wide and there are some paddocks that growers 
elected not to cut because they didn't think, well, they were sure the CCS wouldn't get through above seven, so they wouldn't get paid for it. And the rats are just decimating it. But um, in this district, we do have a permit to aerial rat bait and growers will certainly, when the weather improves, will be probably taking up that up option to try to control them because I've seen some paddocks that are completely destroyed. As the crop disappears before his eyes, Mr DeBella is hoping approved aerial baiting will be the saving grace. They're a native animal, so we've had to apply for a um, permit with, with Queensland Government um, because we're trying to manage a native species. We'll have to report back to government uh, every three months and annually on what we've done, so we've actually got to tell them how many rats that we've, we've killed in the process and um, where we're doing aerial baiting, we have to provide the GPS tracks to show where the baits have actually been employed. And that's Lawrence DeBella ending that report from Lucy Cooper. And you can see more of that story online at ABC Rural. Native rats in their millions invade North Queensland sugarcane crops and a single pair of native rats can produce 460 offspring a year and their population is exploding. Now, from rats to tractors, I don't know how that links, but Australian farmers splashed over $2 billion on 19,000 new tractors in 2022, and the spending spree is tipped to continue this year. According to Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia's Gary Northover, the sales surge was the highest level seen in the industry since the 1980s. We've just uh, seen the numbers for the full year uh, come through in the last couple of days and it's been another fantastic year, another record for the industry. We're tracking around the 19,000 unit sales in tractors, which is the second year in a row we've been at that level and we haven't seen those sorts of numbers since the 1980s. So um, quite another phenomenal year, really. And is there any particular size tractor that has been selling well that's in demand? Look, it's across the board, to be frank. All states and all sizes have been up. Certainly those smaller under 40 horsepower tractors have enjoyed a bit of a bump in the last half of the year. But, you know, the big ones, 200 horsepower and above, have been strong all year. They're 3% up. Queensland's been probably the standout state across the nation. They're 14% up on the previous year. Even WA have been strong again, another 4.5% up for the year. So it's been it's been widespread. Based off how things went for 2022 being such a strong year, what would the mm. outlook be for this year, even though we're just only a few weeks into mm. it? How do you think mm. things are looking? We've been sort of speculating. The industry can't sort of keep going at this sort of rate. When we think 12,000, 13,000 tractors has been a good year for the last you know, number of years, all of a sudden to be two years of 19,000 suggest to you that things might sort of come to a bit of a stop but we don't think we'll see that in 2023 we think that demand is still strong um we do think that demand for agricultural commodities looks like being another strong one this year and the government's temporary full expensing program has another six months to run but all of that's being underpinned by used equipment prices so farmers can trade in or sell their used machine for let's say, very close to what they paid for it and get a newer model with all the uh, features that come with that uh, and, 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 you know, be in good financial shape. So we think that's going to continue for a while and that's probably one of the things that's driving these sorts of uh, continuously high levels. And what's the wait like for new gear? Are you hearing from dealers that once it's ordered, say if you wanted to get a header for the next harvest, would you get it in time or is the wait still quite a way out? 
it's it's still a problem. It's there's no doubt about that. The headers can be a bit different because m- many of the dealers are forward ordering in anticipation, so they're, they're taking a bit of a punt there. But if you're talking about you know, if you want to order a large tractor today from some suppliers, you wouldn't see it till 2024. And indeed, with all the volatility that we're seeing in terms of supply chain and pricing, what have you. Most of those people probably won't even guarantee you a price for that at this stage. So, yeah, that that, that situation hasn't uh, eased at all. And do you think the wet summer, a lot of um, parts of Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales have flooded more recently. Do you think that mm. will slow down buying at all? Those areas that have been affected have been badly affected and that'll, that'll certainly be severe. But across the nation, we feel that much of the areas of um, farming have still been able to continue. So... Hard to tell, but we don't think it'll be as drastic as it seems. Are people still making use of the temporary full expensing program when it comes to upgrading their gear? Yes, they are, but I'd have to say our sort of anecdotal advice is that it's not the sole reason for them making the purchase. It might have been early on where people were taking that opportunity, but there are other factors that are contributing as, as well as the temporary full expensing. It's not the sole reason for people buying tractors. Higher interest rates have been a, a, a big talking point, particularly um, in the housing market. Is that having any flow-on effect at all to the machinery sales? Look, it is. Uh, there's no doubt that people are starting to you know, see that flow through to price increases and, and financing increases, and the tipping point may well be near. Certainly, compared to conditions 12 months ago, the cost of getting into a tractor is much higher. And that was Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia Executive Director Gary Northover speaking there to Cara Jeffrey. Now, does this ring a bell? 1,300 posts, total posts over social media in 24 hours. But, oh, my God, the social impacts of all of this is 2.8 million. Oh, my God! If you're not sure what that was, that was a little bit of audio from social media of Anita Long and Jenny McLeod. They're the founders sisters, Sister Hive Australia, and they, uh, along with a whole lot of people on social media, broke a record, set a new record for the most photos of women beekeeping uploaded in 24 hours. We got that little bit of audio from social media. And if you want to have find out a little bit more about that, that there's a great uh, story on our ABC Rural Online page by uh, Jennifer Nichols, our reporter in Queensland, and myself uh, with some beautiful photos of some of the team and some of the uh, different beekeepers from around the world, uh, including Kiev in Ukraine, uh, Tasmania, uh, snow-covered places in southern uh, America, uh, all over the place where people took part in this and helped um, achieve this world record. So have a look at our ABC Rural Online page and uh, join me again tomorrow for another session of The Country Hour with plenty of diverse stories. Hi, it's Alice Zaslavsky. Food and creating wonderful recipes are some of my life's joys. I'll be talking Divine Dishes on Drive with Lucy Braden this afternoon after four. Tune in and tuck in on ABC Radio Hobart.